0: Hello everybody, thank you very much for listening. We're going to go through day 11 of my trip through Israel today. Day 11 is pretty exciting. We, we're over halfway uh, for the whole trip. I think uh, I have listed here 17 days of, of touring and things to go over with all of you. So we're well over the halfway point. Um, and as far as recording goes for podcasts, um, some of the later days we did a lot of travel. so um, And we also, you know, later on, In this trip, we also had the attack on Jerusalem, so that might take a little bit longer, but then some of the travel days, um, I might be able to consolidate a few things, so we might not even have as many episodes left as we do days, so we're getting through this at a pretty good clip, which I think is great, and I appreciate you all listening up to this point, but day 11, uh, I have listed down, it was October 4th, 2023, and we visited Masada, Qumran, and the Dead Sea, So pretty big, uh, pretty big sites, big names in uh, the world of archaeology and history. Uh, Masada being one of the final stands of the Jewish people during the first Jewish war. Qumran being where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and then the Dead Sea being, you know, just all throughout the Bible and people are familiar with, even if they're not familiar with it biblically, they're familiar with what it is and how interesting it is um, just geographically. So we're pretty fortunate to see a few really cool sites today as far as uh, history and biblical archaeology and geography goes, Uh, the first being Masada. So remember, we are in Jerusalem. We've made our way uh, through the desert up to the high elevation of Jerusalem. We're at about 2,500 feet. I think exactly it's like 2,575 And we're gonna be going down to the lowest elevation, not only in the area, but in the whole world by the end of the day at uh, the Dead Sea. And Masada and Qumran are also pretty low. They're not the lowest in the world, but they are really low and they're they're near the Dead Sea. Uh, At least from Masada, you can see the Dead Sea all around. And Qumran's not very far from that. So we are going from really high up, nice cooler temps, all the way down into the desert. Uh, very exposed open areas. And we were told it could get really, really hot this day. Fortunately, um, we just got, we had a really good day. I mean, we got to Masada pretty early and it was, it was nice because there was a good amount of cloud cover. It was still sunny and still, um, I don't want to say it wasn't like warm it definitely was warm but it just wasn't other people that have been there before said it's been extraordinarily hot these days when we went to Masada it's very open Uh, even when you're at the top of Masada it's just very exposed and so the sun can really beat down on you but this day it just it wasn't terrible the weather was really really nice so that was great and we got there first we drove down that elevation back down the hill of Jerusalem down into the desert area and we got our first sighting, I think, of the Dead Sea at this point in time. And it was cool to see. Um, it's, you know, it's not archaeological, but it's geographical. And when you see things like that, um, like archaeology, there are times where people will discover something archaeologically. And there's a period of time where they question what it is they they've found. And they, they'll speculate it's this or it's this. And over time, they come to certain consensus about, like what exactly they've discovered. But when you see something like the Dead Sea, there is no amount of questioning. It's just like, this is the Dead Sea. It has always been the Dead Sea. We have record of it being the Dead Sea and evidence right now why it's the Dead Sea. So it's just kind of cool because no matter what people want to question archaeologically, or um, even if they don't want to question the archaeology, if they want to question the validity of the biblical account somehow. There are certain landmarks, like the Dead Sea, that you're just like, you can't really explain this away. Like, this is a very real place, and it's very clear that the Bible was written in an area that was familiar with this landmark, and so uh, just kind of evidence and proof that nobody can take away, no matter what's discovered archaeologically or historically. So I think it was really cool to see and uh, I was excited to swim in it, honestly, and we'll get to that at the end of the day. But we saw the Dead Sea and made our way along the coast to um, Masada. And for those that don't know what Masada is, essentially, like I said in the intro, it's um, the site of the final stand of the Jewish people during the first Jewish war. So this is around 72 to 73 A.D., so imagine the temple fell in 70 AD. And so the I mean the Roman army is pretty tired of the Jewish people to the point that they are going to take even heavier control over Jerusalem to the point that they have no regard for the temple at all. They tear it all down. They I mean essentially the Jews are exiled from their own city and they have to flee. But they're still remaining Uh, rebels. And so they flee out to the desert, down the hill, just like we did from Jerusalem into the desert. And they're going to find some heavily defensible place. And Masada was one of these places. Um, For those of you that listened to previous episodes, when we went to Herodium, I talked about how Herod had built this, essentially this mountain out of nothing, built this mountain, built an incredible fortress on the top, a palace as well that he could go and and stay. And it was somewhere that Jerusalem could see this mountain and he could see Jerusalem just as a constant reminder that he was their ruler, uh, whether they liked it or not. And so a lot of the rebels um, during the third Jewish rebellion or the third Jewish revolt um, saw this place and they thought that's the place that we're going to take as our own. And so we're going to use essentially one of our enemy's greatest strongholds against him and Herod was very much um, accused of being in league with Rome, and so a lot of the Jewish people couldn't stand Herod or any of the Herods, and so the fact that they would take this, this fortress, this hilltop fortress, and use it in their own defense was uh, kind of a, an insult to the Roman people, but also an incredible strategic move because it was well fortified, it was high up, it was hard to um, go attack. And so Masada is one of these. It's uh, a place also built up by Herod, Herod the Great, and he's got a palace there, but it's also just really high up, hard to access, and easily defensible. So uh, the Jews had this mindset from the first Jewish war, and they continued it on uh, into the third Jewish war as well, of just reclaiming uh, enemy strongholds and using them for their own, which I think is just kind of speaks to their their character and their uh, just kind of fieriness. I don't know. There, there's something about the Jewish wars and reading about them, you're just like, man, these guys were smart and they had an attitude about them that is kind of respectable a little bit. And so that's where we went was Masada, the last uh, defense spot for the Jewish war, the Jewish Roman war, between seventy-two and seventy-three AD, and, and it didn't go so well. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the story, essentially Rome surrounded this area and besieged it, so the Jews couldn't escape. Like they were stuck on this hilltop. And if you if you think of um, like Utah, it almost this desert almost looks like Utah, or like somewhere out in Western America. And you look out and there's just kind of these these like rising cliffs that have plateaus at the top of them. That's a lot of what Masada looks like. And you can see, uh, depending on where you're listening to, in the description of this episode, there should be pictures um, of each day for this podcast. So if you want to go and look at those, uh, I think that'd be pretty helpful too. But if not, or you just aren't really feeling like looking at things, that's fine. But it kind of looks like Utah, very, very desert-like. But these, st- these tall rock fixtures that have plateaus at the top, this is what Masada is. And so the Jewish people have this, these like stair steps up to it and it's steep. It's kind of treacherous. It's, um, it's just difficult to access, but they got up there and the Romans are, you know, they attempt to get up at first, but they can't because if you're going up a narrow staircase, it's easy to just shoot you down or um, attack you one at a time. And so that's, that's the purpose. That's why the Jews are here. And so the Romans are like, well, we'll just stay at the bottom and we'll try and like wait them out essentially. But they're well fortified up at the top. They've got all the things they need to live for a while. And so eventually the Romans get kind of tired of it and they build a lot like Herod did actually, when he built Herodium, they build this earth ramp from essentially ground level all the way up to the walled fortress at Masada. And that's how they access it. And I mean, you could imagine the Jewish people like sitting there watching them and just little by little, this earth ramp gets closer and closer to your walls. And you know that time is going to run out soon. And so what do you do? Um, there's options. And when we're up there, when we got to Masada and we were up on the top, uh, I'll go back and kind of talk about getting into the site in a second but i want to go through the story when we got to the top our guide gathered us around inside one of the buildings and he said okay so you are a jewish revolutionary at masada rome is they've been there for a while you've attacked some they've attacked some and you're still doing well but they're building this earth ramp and it's just a day or so until they reach you and you know this what do you do Do you go ahead and fight? Do you surrender and hope that they're at least merciful to your wives and children? Or do you do what they did at Masada, which is they gathered together, according to the story, at least that Josephus tells, they gathered together, they drew lots, and the last person that basically drew the short straw would be the last one alive, and everyone kills themselves. Or they kill each other when it comes to like their families or their kids. Because um, remember, they're they're not just up here with like an army battalion. They brought, I mean, the Jews at large were forced to flee Jerusalem. And so they brought their families. They brought possibly some elderly with them if they could make the journey. Uh, odds are not good that that was true. But they brought people close to them. And so they're living as a little community up on Masada. And when, it's, when it comes out that they're not going to make it, Rather than give themselves into the hands of the enemies, they decide they're going to end their own lives. And that way, well, there's a couple reasons why. So for one, Rome was not feeling particularly friendly to the Jewish people. And so possibly they thought, we're going to experience much more horrible deaths and torture at the hands of the Romans. So killing ourselves is simpler. It's easier. It's more merciful. Uh, two, they're not giving the Romans a satisfaction. It's like you didn't actually beat us, we beat ourselves. And so um, it could be that that fiery spirit that I talked about a second ago. Um, and then three, it could be that like they figured, well, they'll definitely kill us, the revolutionaries, but we don't know what they're gonna do to our families and it's better that we all just die and basically tell our own story, be control of our own fate, in control of our own fate. And so this is what our guide asked us, like, what do you do? If you're up here and you have this choice to make, what's your choice? And a lot of people were, you know, they'd say like, well, I wouldn't kill myself or I wouldn't kill anybody. I'd hope the Romans would be merciful. But then our guide would paint a picture of the Romans and how that mercy really wasn't their style if you have provoked them to this point. So really just brought the story to life because you can read a story and you can hear about it and it can be... Uh, very provoking, very stirring, but then to put yourself in that spot when you are literally standing on the ground where it happened, that was a very different thing to imagine. So I appreciated that he did that. So Masada is um, a very sobering place, very historically fascinating. Um, culturally, it's it's kind of, it's not biblical in the sense that it's not in the Bible. It's It's written, or this happens after the time that the scriptures talk about, well, and I guess that kind of depends too on your dating of the book of John and Revelation and 1st, uh, 2nd, and 3rd John. Some people say that was written pretty late. And so if we have a late dating of the book of John, it's possible that this happened before that, but still kind of uh, late in the biblical record. And so we only have record of this essentially from Josephus, not that it's never mentioned anywhere else later, but a primary account, the, the first account we have of this And the one that people go to the most is Josephus' account. And that's actually what lends some people to question it. Because Josephus was writing for a Roman audience, um, but he was still very much Jewish. So he kind of had a lot of bias on one hand in favor of his culture. So he might make them look better than they were. And on the other hand, in favor of the Romans, because he's living under their power, protection and authority. And so he wants to basically keep his life, keep his status in their government and in, in their civilization. And so the more he makes the Romans look good, the better. And then some also say, uh, how Josephus got his start. Uh, he was a general, pretty, pretty wealthy guy. And he was, he, um, fought in one of the Jewish wars actually, and his own battalion, uh, gave one of these pacts. They said, okay, we're not going to be taken prisoner. We are, if we get to that point, we are going to kill ourselves rather than give Rome the satisfaction. And everybody did it. And Josephus was the last man to make sure it got done. And then he didn't do it. He decided that he was going to live so that he could tell the story of what happened to his people. And some look at that and say, Joe was kind of cowardly. Some look at that and say, we're grateful he did it because he did preserve history. Um, but either way, his story might very much affect the telling of the Masada story because could he be showing that the people that killed themselves at Masada didn't do a heroic thing because look at what happened. like No one's really around to record their story except for me, the one who decided to live? And he wasn't at Masada. It's just a kind of a similar account. Um, Or could he be saying that it's a brave thing that they did? And really people go back and forth, but there are people who question the validity of Masada. Uh, Not often are those archaeologists because they've pretty well excavated the, the top of Masada and they see that There is good evidence for what happened there. But it's really hard when you're talking about the life or death of people at any given area because archaeologically speaking, if you don't have evidence of suicide, then you can't really corroborate the story. And yet the evidence of suicide would be really, really difficult to find. So those bodies now would be indistinguishable from other dead bodies. And additionally, you have the idea that the Romans, after coming up to Masada, who were the ones that discovered that this had happened, um, they're not going to leave those bodies there as some sort of memorial. You know, they're going to get rid of them. They're going to do something with them. So the odds that you go to the top of Masada and find this community of people that had done this brave thing in defying Rome, the odds just are not good that you're going to find archaeological evidence for that. So I do think that it happened. I do think it's historically verifiable, but you just cannot look strictly archaeologically. You also have to look literarily. And I think if you do that, um, there's good reason to think that this was a legitimate event, especially when you have so many other recorded events uh, where this type of thing did happen. So I'm going to go back then and talk about when we got to Masada because there's a little bit to walk through there. Um, So we pulled into the parking lot went into like the visitor center area and we all got tickets and the tickets were for this like sky tram this um cable car thing they had that went from the bottom all the way to the top of masada so we didn't have to walk they call it the snake path we didn't have to walk that crazy steep uh stair line up to the top of masada we could go up in cable cars and that's great uh, if you ever want to go, it's not, it's very accessible, you know, to anybody and everybody. Uh, I was a little disappointed though, to be totally honest with you. Um, there was something about, I talked about in past episodes about climbing something yourself the way they used to, or just kind of feeling that sense of accomplishment that I really wanted. And when we got there, I didn't think to ask, you know, we're just, it's like you got a ticket, we're going up as a group. So I didn't really think to ask, well, can I walk up? A few people did in our group, and they did. They, they walked from bottom to top up these steep stairs, and I was a little bit envious of them. Uh, not that it wouldn't have been difficult, but it just seemed like such a cool thing to say that you've done. But I go back to this, this weighing of decisions in my head where it's like, okay, personally, I would love to walk up and it would be difficult, it would be hard. Our guide said that it could take like 45 minutes or so, depending on how quickly you go, and you might miss a lot of the tour at the top. So I'm weighing, like, do I want to miss the tour at the top just to say that I've climbed it? And also, the people that decided they were going to climb it were quite a bit faster than I was, and so they might take 45 minutes, but I might take an hour and 10. Like, I don't know how much slower I'm going to be. I'm not sure how draining it's going to be. So I'm weighing all these things. I kind of regret it now. But hindsight's twenty twenty. If I go back 100%, I'll be climbing to the top. And it looks steep. But it also just looks so cool. Like you see these people. And there are very clear stairs. It's not like you got to find the stairs between the rocks. It's like, no, this is clearly a stairway. Um, but it, it looks like part of the rock a little bit. And there's only certain places where you can see um, exactly where they're supposed to go. Now, when you're on the ground, I'm sure it's a lot easier to see this, but from the cable car going up, you kind of follow along this stair line and you're like, oh man, like I'm not sure where they're supposed to walk right there. So I don't know. Next time, I'm definitely going up the stairs, but I didn't want to hold anybody up and I didn't want to miss the tour. So, you know, you almost have to go a couple times to see and do everything you want. And I knew this going into Israel, so I can't be too disappointed. I think in the end I made the right call, but at some point I would like to go. But it's good for people to know that if you go, you everybody can make it. You know, there's options and ways up. It's not all just hiking and climbing and scaling rock walls or anything like that. It was advanced modern cable car up to the top. So we go up this cable car to the top of the top of the cliff face or the plateau of this rocky area and we're at Masada and this is where our guide gave us the the tour of all the buildings it's kind of cool here Um, even though most people don't like it I guess it's not really a good thing as far as archaeological discovery goes for me a tourist I thought it was great all along the walls they have this black painted line. It's almost like someone just spray painted a painted black line all along the walls of every building at the top of Masada. And I didn't know what it was at first until our guide explained that what this is, is a dividing line between what they found here on the site and what they had to rebuild. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that the rocks that they rebuilt weren't original to the site also. Sometimes things are just falling over and they've got a put it back up, and build it up again. So it's like a restoration rather than a replacement. But the bottom rocks were the ones that were still standing and still there. And so below the black line, it's all original, no restoration. Top of the black line, there's restoration. uh, Potential replacement if they had to bring in some rocks to fit or something like that. But I like this because I can... I don't know, you know me, if you've listened to this point, I like to go touch the things that are real. I like to touch the rock and say, yeah, I was there. I touched that rock. And so to see the things that were like, no, this is clearly demarcated as real. I appreciated that. Apparently from an archeological standpoint, this is not the best practice. And it actually um, keeps them from being a UNESCO world heritage site. So most of the places we had seen fall under this category but Masada specifically doesn't, because they decided to paint that line there, and I don't know why that keeps them out, but I guess it does. I really wish there were a way that I could impress upon you how high up you feel um, when you're. It doesn't feel high up like if you're afraid of heights, you look out and think, "Oh man, I'm going to fall." But it's so high up, like it just feels like you can see forever. Um, you can see the Dead Sea you can see so much of the desert and the surrounding mountains and it's just stunning i mean it's absolutely beautifully stunning and the pictures i mean you can look at the pictures most of them don't do it justice but you can see around the area from the top of masada these little square it almost just looks like square disturbances in the sand around um, a little bit darker in color And what these are, uh, depending on where you look, but all around Masada are old Roman camps. And so, you can see just how surrounded they were. And there's bigger ones and smaller ones, but they're all over. And so, no matter where you go along this plateau at the top, you can look out and see these Roman camps below. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not intimidating because it's just kind of a flattened square area, but... If you were to live at that time and know that each of those flat and square areas accounts for maybe 50 people that want to kill you, and you're looking at your community and you're like, man, we don't, we just don't have that many people, it'd be pretty intimidating to be surrounded like that. So um, looking out, I mean, for one, it is just beautiful. Like really, this vantage point is stunning, but to look at it from a historical point of view... Um, Would have been very isolating, I think. And so that would have been another thing to combat as you are these Jewish people seeing your days kind of tick by and realizing that you're not going to last much longer. Um, So hauntingly beautiful, I would say. And when we are up there, uh, we took a tour of some of the buildings and just kind of heard the story of Masada again. And some people were curious if we got to go and see... Herod's palace, like that portion of Masada, where this would have been, you know, like one of the first things constructed that even made this a place that the Jewish people were aware of. And we did. And what you have to do to do this, like to get to Herod's palace, it's kind of like you're at the top of this giant plateaued cliff area, and you have to walk down along the side of it to get like basically to the front of the cliff area. And that's where Herod's palace was. And we're going down these stairs. And I just kept thinking, I don't know how on earth they made it to this. Or like, I'm not sure how Herod had access to this building because literally the stairs that you are on to get down to it are not the original stairs. They are stairs built into the rock wall by whatever organization, you know, funded this, place to be a spot of tourism and I don't know I don't see any other stairs that they could have accessed it in the first century and it's uh it's pretty intimidating honestly to go down these stairs you're just like you're looking over the edge like wow I mean I can see so far out and that helps me because I'm like even with so many things that are far away so I don't feel like I'm way up in the air necessarily until I look down and then I'm like whoa I am way, way up here. And you can see this in some of the pictures um, that I took from the side of the stairs. Cause you can look back up towards the top of Masada and see little people up there. And you realize just how, how high up you are and how on a cliff face you are. Uh, but we did this, we walked down these stairs and for some reason, I'm not sure why this was probably the most tired my legs got the whole time I was in Israel. It was just a lot of stairs down there and, um, going down wasn't bad, obviously, but coming back up, it was like, wow, that was actually a lot of steps. And so for some reason, it's not that we didn't climb other days. It's not, maybe I was just more tired this day. I'm not sure, but I got, I got pretty beat, um, going down these stairs. And so we walked down these stairs and around the side of this cliff face over into Herod's palace area. And it was pretty cool. I was glad to see it because other people who are in our group that, um, um, had been to Masada before, didn't have an opportunity to see this part of it, and so it was cool to like, on my first try, you know, my first visit, see the things that people didn't get to see the first time, um, and they, I was glad they got to see it too, and you get down there, and it's, there's like a large cylindrical building built right into the cliff face, and you are in one of these rooms just before it, And there's pillars all around the room. Obviously, it's open to the air now. It's not like a closed off building. But you can see kind of the outline of this palace built right into the face of this cliff at Masada. And it's, I mean, architecturally, it's stunning. From an engineering perspective, and I'm not an engineer, but I don't need to be an engineer to know that building that high up on the side of a mountain or a cliff is probably a very difficult thing to do for anybody, let alone somebody in the first century. So, uh, or even pre-first century, so this was uh, just really cool to see. And you're standing on flat ground. Once you make it around the cliff face from these little walkways and stairs going down, it opens up, and so we're all we can all like walk around and see everything. Uh, but there's pillars along the wall. There's original plaster and painting, and just really cool to see something that old that is so well preserved. And from here as well, uh, you get a great view. Of out into the desert and the Dead Sea and everything because this side of Masada faces the Dead Sea as well and so that was really cool then coming back up like I said um, just absolutely exhausting Um, really really a lot of stairs now definitely do it I don't want to make anybody not do it because it was 100% worth it but for some reason I don't know what it was everyone else seemed to be okay But I came to the top of those stairs. I was like, wow, Like my legs are sore. But we weren't done just yet. We had to walk from the front side of Masada all the way to the far side. And so it's kind of like walking through a village. I mean, literally at the top of this thing, when you're on the ground and you can see the plateau up there, you're like, yeah, that's tall. But you don't really get a sense for how wide open it is at the top until you're up there and once you're up there you're like wow yeah just it's like I could see a community living up here there's plenty of buildings and there's streets and um, it's not limited in space I mean well it is limited in space but not so limited that you feel like we're all just stuck up here on the pinnacle of a mountain or anything there's a lot of room up there and so I can see it's got a very communal feel to it you could see where the homes are where the shops were where the synagogue was and so we just walked through this town to the far side of Masada, so that we could see um, the remains of the Roman ramp that they've built, and it's incredible. Um, now I know, like when I talked about Herod building a mountain, um, that is incredible in and of itself because it's it was made to last, and it, it had this palace on top and this fortress. The Roman ramp was just utilitarian. They all they wanted was it to be strong enough to get them up there, and not strong enough like it would hold them. Because remember, it's made of just earth. There's not they're not building like a whole infrastructure of a bridge or a ramp here. They're starting from nothing and just piling dirt upon dirt upon dirt to get up to the top of Masada. And this reminds me of what Alexander the Great did um, when he was going after Tyre. Um, I don't know if you know that story, but Tyre, the city of Tyre had two main cities, a land city and an island city. And when Alexander the Great was coming through and conquering everywhere, he'd go to a city and he'd say, if you want to just submit to me, I don't have to fight you. I don't have to burn down your whole place. You can just submit to me and you'll be part of this empire and you can pay me taxes and we can be okay. Tyre, the land city fell pretty quickly, but their counterpart, like, other half of their city on the island, they wrote back and they said, You know, we have no desire to submit to you. You can't get to us anyways. We're way out here. And they thought they were like very well defended and just could easily withstand a siege. So they said no. And so what Alexander the Great did was pile trash and dirt into the water to create a land bridge across the water. And he marched across, I mean, it took him years and years and years to do it, but he marched his army right across and just flattened that island city. And so today, if you look on a map at Tyre, um, there is no island there. It looks like a peninsula because Alexander the Great dumped land to the point where he changed the geography of that part of the world. And it's just, I mean an engineering feat like no other, and this is very similar. They just took land and piled it up and up and up in order to reach where they wanted to reach, and all the while they're being fired upon and stones are being thrown down, but still they managed to pile up enough land to reach the wall of the city and climb in. So we were going to see the remains of that, and it's right next to a giant square, like I mentioned earlier, this giant square of a Roman camp, the biggest one in all the area. Um, and next to that square, there you can see there's a um, just one big hill of dirt. And you're like, okay, well, what's that hill of dirt? I don't, you know, it just looks like a hill of dirt. But this is where the ramp would have started from. And you so you can look out from the walls and see where the ramp started, and even from there, there is like a trail going down, and it just looks like a sloped, like instead of a sheer cliff, there's sloped dirt coming pretty close up to the wall uh, of Masada, and so it's not perfect. It's not like this is very clearly a well-ordered and established ramp. It doesn't look. It's, it doesn't look like anything built. It looks like the land is just kind of this way but you can see the starting point of it at that giant hill of dirt and then you can see the ramp leading up and on either side it just kind of angles out into the landscape and i mean it's incredible the fact that it's still here for one because what like th- there wasn't a huge effort to like preserve this right like it wasn't like um wow we need to remember this time in our history where As Rome, you know, we got up to this place and they were all dead already. Or we were uh, stopped from seeking justice on these people that had disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. And so we went out to the desert and we just took care of them. It was like, no, this is kind of an embarrassing time for Rome, to be honest. So they weren't trying to preserve this. And yet thousands of years later, you can go and you can see the dirt that they piled up at this spot to be able to walk from one place to the next. It's just absolutely incredible. So from there, we walked, um, we saw the ramp. We walked a little bit further um, because our guide wanted to show us something. And there's this place, um, when you get to the top of Masada, um, I'm going to try and lay it out as best I can. You get to the top of Masada, and uh, Herod's Palace is at the front side of this cliff. Then towards the back, if you are like just walking straight towards the back of this city, there's the ramp over to the right back, and then where we went next was over to the left on the back. And we saw some pretty cool things. They even had um like pigeon coops, I guess, where they would just keep pigeons. Sorry, not pigeons. They were doves. They would keep doves there. Um it's Jewish people, they're not keeping pigeons. That's unclean. But they, they would keep doves and they would keep them some people ask like what well, do they keep them like for messages? Like sending messages back and forth. That would be pretty cool. Um, but they didn't. At this point, that was not really a thing, but they kept them for food as well as fertilizer. I guess dove poop was really good for fertilizer, so they could even grow crops up here, which is pretty impressive. We walk across this wide open town uh, to the far side, the left side of Masada, and we were facing kind of another cliff face um, from a different elevated point, so almost like if you were to look at what Masada is as far as that cliff and then plateaued area, there's another one uh, on the other side of it. And so we were facing that. And there, I mean, there's all kinds of um, mountainous, rocky places in this whole desert area. But there's just another one next to Masada, not quite as flat. Obviously, there's nothing built up there. But it's still just like a beautiful rock formation. And we stood there on the side of the city and... And he had us yell out something so that we could hear the echo back. And I mean, I've heard echoes before, you know, it's, I feel like I kind of felt like I was a six year old, you know, he's like, all right, we're going to hear our echo now, everybody, what should we yell? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, 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 it's, I mean, I get what an echo is we had to walk all the way here to hear an echo, but I will say it was probably the coolest thing. Uh, I mean, it was the coolest echo I've ever heard for sure. And it was just so, um, I included a video of it in the pictures, if you want to look at it there, but basically, and it's really grainy, I'm sorry, In my on my phone it's not, but when I uploaded it, it got really grainy. But what we did was all of us at the same time yelled out as loud as we could the word shalom. And normally in Echo, you know, it's like you yell shalom, and then you hear it kind of back to you, and it just kind of descends. It's like shalom, 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 shalom. This was totally different in the sense that we yelled it and a full like second and a half passed before we heard anything. And then suddenly it felt like it almost seemed like someone else was yelling it back to us like a whole second and a half later, like we had yelled out and then they had heard us, this army of people, they had heard us and then they yelled it back. That's what it felt like. And I mean, everyone got chills. So it was really, really cool. Uh, I hope you can hear that in the video. Um, if you want to take a look at it. So that was Masada. After this, we just kind of walked back, and we underestimated how far we had to walk back, because again, from the ground, Masada just looks like, yeah, there's a plateau up there, but when you're up there, it is a pretty wide open sprawling platform uh, with a whole city in it. So we had to walk back across this city, find the entrance, and we got back on our bus. So from Masada, we had a pretty short drive, probably just about 10 minutes along the Dead Sea to get to Qumran. And it was a little bit past the Dead Sea, so I don't think we could quite see it from where we were. Um, but we we're still in this desert area, still the beautiful rock formations, the same type of rock formations, honestly, as Masada. And you just kind of see it as this wall of beautiful high elevation, um, various colors in the rocks, a lot of oranges and browns. And so we're driving along this until we reach another visitor center. And Qumran is interesting because it's not like you're going to this place and then seeing ruins, or like there is a visitor center, but then when you leave that visitor center, you're just kind of walking out into an outdoor space where you can look up at these rock formations to see caves. And so there's not a lot to walk around and see, or do, or interact with, or there's not a lot of things to read like, uh, plaques or signs indicating what things are. It's just, you're walking through the visitor center so that you can go and see the caves kind of far off. Uh, I still thought it was really cool because, uh, if you don't know, like I said earlier, this is where, uh, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the story is there was a Bedouin shepherd boy kind of walking along. Um, and they, you know, the sheep and goats here are very much like built for this kind of terrain. So they're walking along some of the rock formations and he's throwing rocks. You know, that's what I do too. If I was a kid on a walk, like I throw rocks. Even now I go on a walk, I like pick leaves or little berries and stuff or crab apples and just like toss them at things along the walk. And he's doing that with rocks and he sees uh, some holes in the rocks and he throws you know, some holes in like the bigger rock faces, throw some pebbles in, and then here's some breaking. So uh, when he discovered when he went in there and discovered what it was, it was like these pots and ceramic ware that had scrolls inside. And it was pretty poorly documented for a while, actually. Um, people went in there and took some and sold little pieces of them. And so the once it kind of got out into like that information got to the people that it really needed to go to, Um, they had kind of a job to not only uh, go in there and like get the scrolls and then make sure they were preserved, but then try and find the pieces of them that had been taken or stolen. I guess uh, archaeological thievery is kind of a big deal in all these places. And people will go in at night while things are being excavated and steal stuff and try and sell it off. And that also encourages a lot of fakes to be sold. So they got to sift through all that. Um, but eventually, you know, we have the, what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, labeled that because they're right next to the Dead Sea and they are scrolls. And what's thought, uh, is that essentially when the Jews were forced out of Jerusalem and maybe even before that, um, Either the when the Jews were forced out of Jerusalem towards the 70s, um, people fled into the desert and then took their you know their Hebrew Bible with them and important other important writings from synagogues and stored them there so they wouldn't get taken by the Romans. That's one story. The other is that uh, the Essenes, who were uh, kind of one ideology amongst the Jews in the first century, um, others being like Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots. Uh, they they saw themselves as kind of a truer chosen people than the rest of the Jewish people. And so they looked at uh, the Herods as being an abomination for leadership, the leadership choice of the Jewish people. They looked at the high priest of the time who'd been kind of put there by Rome and could buy his way into that spot or other high high- ranking officials. and they said this is why Messiah is not coming to us because, we are walking all over what he wanted us to do. So we're going to go into the desert with our own high priest, descended from the line of Aaron, and we're going to keep the old ways and keep things very strictly and very rigidly and not intermarry outside of ourselves. And um, so this is what they did. They went out in the wilderness and this is how they lived. And this was well prior to 70 AD, but they lived out here and um, it's very possible that, these guys who were, they saw themselves as like a pure form of Jewish people were waiting for Messiah, waiting for the reestablishment of the temple and waiting for the, like they saw themselves as like when prophecy is going to be fulfilled and Israel is brought back and put on top and everything, they saw themselves as the beneficiaries of those those prophecies. And so they could have possibly been the ones that hid these scrolls out here. Um, because this was kind of their stomping ground. This is where they lived. And so either way, uh, no matter how they got there, it's one of our earliest um, attestations to the accuracy of the Hebrew Bible. So when we see um, when we see our, our Old Testament and we're reading through it and it's like, well, is this accurate? How do we know we have the right the right scripture here? Um, the Old Testament we can see from the Dead Sea Scrolls is accurate. Uh, because these scrolls that were found that were so much older than any we'd found before uh, still show us that we're, we're pretty accurate in the translation and the copies that we have. So that's really cool. It, it shows that they were faithful in copying down the scriptures. Because um, some people would say, well, we don't have any of the originals, so how do we know? Well, the closer you get back to the source and the less errors you have between, then the more likely your manuscripts are correct. So uh, even though we don't have super ancient manuscripts, like we would hope to have, like none of our manuscripts are three or 4,000 years old, it, that'd be really cool if we found them, but just, you know, paper doesn't last that long or vellum or papyrus, whatever they're writing on just doesn't last that long. So the oldest we can go and see, Um, how little it's changed over time helps us to know how accurately it's been copied. And that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us. It's not that we didn't have those scriptures before, but now we can look at those and see that way, way back, uh, according to how these things are dated, we can see that we have appropriate and correctly translated scriptures. So that's, that's really cool. Um, We got to see these at the Jerusalem or the Israel museum um, just prior to, to this day. So that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, like I said, there wasn't a lot to see there. We just kind of walked the thing I was surprised by. We, we walked out past the visitor center and you walk along, um, kind of a gravel path and we got to this overlook and there was no, there was no railing. There was no anything. It was just like, don't get too close to the edge because we don't know how sturdy the ground is and you could fall off. And so if you look at the pictures I have of, um, like where we're at, you can kind of see it in the pictures where I am. I'm standing on like some some less, like um, some smaller gravel and the caves are behind me. But where the ground ends kind of maybe like 15 to 20 feet past me, that's just like a really steep drop off. And so um, it was kind of kind of bizarre. And, you know, some people still tested the waters. They got a little bit close. And even our guide, which... I'm, I was amazed constantly at how little shook them. Like we'd be in a place that um, seemed a little more sketchy or like, I don't know, something would happen and the guide would be like, oh yeah, this is just kind of how things go. Like they seem to have no fear of anything really. But then people would get too close to that edge and the guide was like, uh, maybe like please come back because we not only could you fall off because you're misjudging your step but or you turn around and take a picture and don't realize how far back you've scooted but also the ground might not be as stable there. So uh, that was kind of wild, but it was beautiful to see the cliff faces and the caves and everything. You really had this sense of like, we went about as close as we could um, from this entrance point, but there were people back in there that were like hiking. Um, It's just, it's not really easily accessible. So you can go back in there. I'm sure you could take tours that would take you back towards there it'd be really cool to be able to go and see inside the caves. But our guide was saying like, you're really not missing a lot. Like you go in, it's like, okay, I've climbed up here and now I'm in a cave and they're not like really deep caves. There's nothing to really explore. It's just, these are the caves where they had these, um, these, this pottery with scrolls in it. So it's cool. It would be cool to climb into just to see and say you did it, but he was pretty. And our guide, Duran, he, um, Man, like he was a, a he's an athlete. Like he ran and did like cross country stuff and just a lot of like long distance running. And he ran difficult and different trails. Like even at Masada, I talked about the snake path going up. He's like, Oh yeah, I've run that before. Like we'll go before the sun comes up and we'll take like 20 minutes to get up there and then we'll see the sunrise over Masada. And I'm like, man, that is incredible. Like, I mean, it's a steep, kind of harsh path. So to do it in the dark and everything, but He's just very familiar with the area, very familiar with the terrain, um, incredibly well built, very fit, very active. And so for him to like, look at the caves and be like, yeah, I mean, I've seen stuff. I have friends that go in there and it's really not anything to write home about. I, I believed him. So there was a part of you that wanted to go out there, but he kind of put that, put that to bed a little bit. And I wasn't, I didn't really feel like I was missing out necessarily, but it was kind of cool to see people walking, um, along some of these areas, like you look out and you're like, I don't even see a potential for there to be a path up there. Um, but if you're a Bedouin shepherd, uh, your sheep and your goats definitely find ways up. So you got to find ways up too. So that was pretty neat to see. Um, again, like I said, not a ton to see there. It was, um, something else interesting from that area. Um, Well, one thing about Masada real quick, and then I'll run back to Qumran. I just, I forgot to say this earlier. Uh, Masada is is really important historically, but to the Jewish people culturally, it's still really important. Like when they swear in, um, every person in Israel is expected to enlist in their, their army or their military. So when they do that and they take their oath... It includes a reference to Masada saying, we will not let this happen again. Like when they swear to protect their nation, which they take very, very seriously, like they have a lot of nationalistic pride. Um, not to say they all agree politically or anything, but they really do all love their nation. And when they look at this, they have, they're, they're, they've written in there uh, this reference to Masada saying, this is not going to happen to us anymore, where we are oppressed and have to, uh, kill ourselves because we're being sieged by an enemy army like that's just not going to happen we'll fight to the last man so this is still a very significant um, place for them and so that w- that's another reason why it was really cool to see just the the emotional and cultural significance it has for the people there um, but at Qumran something interesting you're looking out on the, all these rock formations and you can see these like striation patterns all the way up the cliff face and um What our guide was saying is that while right now it's desert and it's dry, this place is incredibly prone to flash floods. So if it rains, suddenly uh, these cliff faces turn into waterfalls and these valleys and these gullies turn into active rivers. And it's hard to picture it, but you can see where the water is carved out through the rock. And this area, this landscape here would have been very similar to... What David's writing about when he writes in Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Like this is the area. So, where I'm looking and I'm seeing desert, he is looking and he sees that this area can be absolutely overrun with water. And not only water, but incredible, rushing, fast water. And so, he's contrasting this with the idea of still waters. And he's looking at this area that I would look at as desert. And he says, no, no, no. Like, this is where I will take my sheep out to go and graze. And these are my green pastures. And I'm like, man, where is the green? But in Israel, where, you know, especially at this low elevation where it's hot and the water comes kind of in uh, different seasons, these are, these are areas where they are green sometimes, but even the greenest they get is not like the green I think of in America. So it was really interesting to read the psalm through that lens and just see this landscape and be like, wow, I'm looking at this as absolute arid desert. And David is looking at this as the place where I would lead my sheep and where God leads me. And you also have the valley of the shadow of death, right? In the same psalm, and it's like, I can see that one, absolutely. But David sees this as kind of the same area where you can be led through the valley of the shadow of death, you can be made to lie down in green pastures and you can be beside the still waters all at the same time. And I'm just not seeing that quite yet. So it was interesting to, to think that you know, to put a visual to that psalm and realize it's not what I'm picturing necessarily. And to, it also helped me to view the landscape a little bit differently because uh, on face value, I'm not seeing any of that stuff. But you look around, you do like, that's where you're seeing the shepherds. They're out in this area. And obviously their flocks are finding food. Now, obviously David is from Bethlehem and he's not from Masada or Qumran, but um, this would have been the area that David was fleeing from Saul. And so he would have been very familiar with this area. There's, um, a place around here called En Gedi that it's believed that the cave that David hid in while Saul came in to relieve himself and David cut off the corner of his garment. Um, it's believed that this is probably the cave that David was fleeing from Saul in. So this area is one that David is very familiar with. And, um, even, I mean, Bethlehem is not even really that far. Like Jerusalem is just north of Bethlehem. And then from there you go south. And then you're at Bethlehem where David would have grown up. And then for miles around there would have been the pasture that David is used to. And this kind of includes this area. Maybe it's a little bit farther south um, than David would have been. But this, the terrain is still the same. And David is seeing this terrain And recalling his shepherding days as a young boy and kind of putting himself in place of the sheep. So all of them are are very much connected. I just think it's an interesting way to look at the psalm, especially when you see the pictures and realize um, I would never look at that and think of green pastures or think of still waters or even moving waters by any means. So that was really interesting as well. Now, after Qumran, we uh, went on our last stop of the day, which was to the Dead Sea And I don't think this will take very long to talk about, but it's definitely worth talking about. I feel bad because most people, I think when they look at the title, will probably think like, well, the Dead Sea, that's the thing I want to hear about. That's the thing I know about. That's the experience I want. But it doesn't have necessarily as good of a story as the other places did. So they took a little bit longer to explain um, and to give you the context for. The Dead Sea is really, really interesting. It's just as far as from a storytelling point of view, it doesn't take terribly long. So, But I do want to go through it. Um, As I mentioned before, it is really, really far below sea level, the lowest elevation in the entire world. And so we are kind of already down here, but we got on the bus and had to descend even a little bit more. And then once we got to the parking area where um, there's like several places, it's not like going to the beach and you can just go kind of anywhere on the beach you want. It's like there are specific places where they have marked out where you're supposed to kind of get in. And the reason for this is because the Dead Sea right now has um, receded quite a bit from what it used to be. Uh, The levels are way far down. And even to the point where when we're we're at Masada, looking at the Dead Sea, you can see a strip of land right through the middle of it. So now there's a northern basin and a southern basin. And a lot of this has to do with um, the mining of minerals that they do at the southern basin of the Dead Sea there's, I mean, there's a lot of minerals in the Dead Sea that are great. People use them for like skincare and they're using a lot of like lotions and body oil, stuff like that. So you'll see, uh, factories for this all along the Dead Sea and they sell them in about every gift shop. And, uh, so this has really, really depleted the water in the Dead Sea because you'd think like, well, what could possibly make the water level of the Dead Sea go down? It's so salty that they're not going to, like use it for water necessarily. And that's true, even though uh, if you look on YouTube, I've got a video there about how Israel's trying to resurrect the Dead Sea. And that's a really interesting story too. I'm not going to tell you it here because I already covered it in the YouTube video, but you can go there. The link's below as well. Um, and I talk about how they have plans, like active plans to restore the Dead Sea to life. So that's pretty interesting. But Um, When we went there, we had to go to a specific place because all around the Dead Sea where it's receded is this like very silty, um, unstable land area where a lot of sinkholes are forming actually. So you could walk out and be fine or you could walk out and fall in a sinkhole that's 50 feet deep and never get out. And so it's kind of a, a really risky thing. That's why at certain places, they just have set up as like, this is where we'll have tourists come and get in the Dead Sea. And before we went, our guide was like, yeah, I mean, it'll be fun. Uh, I think that it may not be as enjoyable as you hope that it is. But um," he said, typically, um, I think he said after you reach like 45 or something, you just don't really find it as enjoyable anymore. And I'm not sure if he meant for tourists and everybody or for just locals, because I'm not over 45, but everybody I I saw that was there seemed to enjoy it for the most part. Um, But we got there to the Dead Sea area, and the first thing we did was change clothes, which was one of the most miserable experiences ever. It was packed. I mean, absolutely packed and really not good bathrooms. Think, Think like the most disgusting YMCA bathroom ever. And then fill it with like 55 people just waiting to get changed. So that wasn't super fun. Um, I decided to go to the bathroom instead of the changing areas and the shower areas. And so I just changed in a stall. Still difficult, still gross. Um, but it was a little bit quicker, I think, than some other people had it. So I guess it was a good move, but ugh, still really rough. But we did get changed. And from there... Um, You still have to walk quite a ways down to the sea, not only because the sea is at lower elevation than you can actually park, but because uh, the water has receded. So you got to get from kind of the shore all the way down to the water. And you can, I mean, it's kind of a long way and it's all down. Um, Whether you're going down a path or going downstairs, it's like straight down. And so I put on my uh, water shoes that I had for Hezekiah's Tunnel that are basically like water socks and just started trekking my way down. Then once you're down there you got to find a space to like put your stuff. And there's no good beach there. It's not sandy. It's all kind of mud and big rocks. So it's hard to walk on, especially when you're wearing water shoes that are like socks. Sandals would have been better. Maybe that's good information for next time. Um and so I'm making my way down slowly and trying to find they have chairs down there like white lawn chairs. And I'm trying to find like a place to put my stuff where it's not going to be stolen so I can get into the water. Finally find a spot where there's someone there that isn't going to get in the water, but they wanted to come down and see it. So that was great. I was really appreciative of that. And we go down to get in the water. Now to get in is really strange. Uh, It's a hard walk and you got to be really, really careful because you're walking along solid ground and like, let's say you're in the water And you'll see someone like 20 feet in front of you and you're like, okay, they're ahead of me and the water's only ankle deep. So they must not be like in the deep part of the water yet. And then suddenly you take a step and boom, you're down and the ground just like gave out and you're suddenly knee deep in like this muddy silt and you got to pull your foot out. And so everyone, everyone that goes in everywhere you look is like falling down because you don't know where the ground is going to give way versus where it's not. And my dad actually went down. He like really, really skinned his knee bad. And that was horrible because it's so salty that it just burnt the entire time. And he's still got a like a scab on there from that time even now. And I'm recording in January, so it's been months. Um, but he, he gashed his leg really bad. And other stuff like... Um, even like I had gone through Hezekiah's tunnel and my shoulders like scraped against the side of the wall, never opened up, just scraped against the side of the wall. But now going into the Dead Sea, I could feel it like irritating it and burning it. So just incredibly, incredibly salty. And you know this, but experiencing it is a little bit different. Um, so, but finally you make it out far enough where the ground gives way and you are like maybe up to your belly button in water or so. And you're like, okay, Like, I don't think it's going to get, you know, like, so if you fall into one of those little sinkholes, you have to step back up onto the rocks while trying to keep your balance and pull your other leg out of the silty mud area. And it just, it was difficult. So some people made it out, no problem, but it seemed like everyone I saw was falling down or falling in these little sinkhole areas. And it just depended on if you kept your balance or not. On my way out, I did. On my way back in, I did not um but it kind of reduces everybody to like infants like they're all walking along and boom they're down and there were some old people in there so I'm glad everyone made it out safely but it's kind of a treacherous walk to get into it then once you're in it our guide was telling us he's like it's a lot like swimming in lukewarm chicken noodle soup it's kind of thicker than water somehow and a little bit filmy And so you definitely want to shower afterwards. And he is absolutely right. That's just like what it was. Um, But it was cool. I mean, you're in there and you're like, like my dad would, he'd float and then he'd be like, wait, I want to get back up. It's not like you can't stand in it. You can. It's not like it just tips you over. But if you decide to float and lay on your back, it can be hard to get back up. So I had to tip him a few times to, to get him to stand back up. Um, But it was fun. It was just kind of cool to like be in there and be in the water and, Reflect on the day, and reflect on where you are, and look around at the scenery, and people watch. Oh man, such odd and interesting people all over there. Um, and the other thing people do there is they put mud everywhere because this mud, I guess, is is made up of the same minerals that they're mining um, for all the skincare stuff. And so you've got people all over with just mud all over their whole bodies, just absolutely slathered on. So we did that. I have a picture. Uh, in the file there that you'll see if you look. Um, just I just covered my whole face in mud and it was kind of cool. Um, definitely burns a little bit because you're pulling up handfuls of this mud, but there's also like rock salt in there. And so it's kind of grainy and smooth. Like when it, If it's just mud, it's so smooth. And if it's salt in it, then it's really grainy and kind of grinds on your skin a little bit and doesn't feel the best. But it's still, it's just something you do when you're there at the Dead Sea. So we were there for a while, floated for a time, and then made our way back in. And uh, that was a lot harder. Like I said, I definitely lost my balance there, fell into a sinkhole about up to my knee and pulled my foot out, but lost my swim shoe. So fortunately, I didn't need it any other time. And I could have reached back in and like maybe gotten it, but it was, it was honestly like, probably two feet down in the mud just to try and pull out the swim shoe. And it was like, it fell off deep in there. Like it was not, um, nothing was on the surface. Otherwise I would have gotten it, but I cannot imagine how many people this happens to. So a little piece of my clothing stayed in the Dead Sea. I'm not sure if they'll ever get that out of there. It'll be thousands of years from now. They'll find it fossilized and think, what in the world? They must've had giants here because I got big feet so that's what we did, uh, at the Dead Sea, and we climbed our way back out, they had showers down there, and it wasn't until, uh, like, we walked back up the hill after showering, I got some rocks from down there, got a little bit of mud in in the Bible, where, uh, it talks about the Salt Sea, there's, uh, there's two words for it in the Bible, actually, the Salt Sea, it never actually calls it the Dead Sea, um, the other one is Arabah, which just means, like, bitter, and so this is, what you'd find in the Bible. If you're looking for the dead sea, you're not going to find it, but this is what that sea is. Um, Mentioned it, mentions it as like a border of Israel and everything. So we start climbing back up the hill and I'm, I'm missing one shoe, just kind of walking over the rocks. That was miserable. I have like weak feet when it comes to walking over gravel. I don't know why some people I can see they do it and they're just not at all bothered. It kills me. So that was a rough walk um to the point that i had to like stop after a while and just be like okay i gotta sit down and put my shoes on so i did that and then a little bit up from the water they've got this it's a bar and they call it the lowest bar on earth and they it was just pretty funny and some of our friends stopped there and got a drink i didn't i just wanted to get back up and get into dry clothes again but apparently at that bar they've got bathrooms and so All of us that saw that were like, oh, man, we wish we would have changed there instead of the disgusting sub-level YMCA bathroom that they have up at the top. But um, we didn't didn't know that that was there until after we got back on the bus and people were like, hey, do you guys notice they had a bathroom there? So that was unfortunate. It would have made things a lot easier. So if you ever go, my tips are don't get cut on your way. Walk very slowly into the water um, change in the bathroom down at the bar instead of up at the top. Um, maybe take the golf cart back up. They do have golf carts. If you can't make it back up, you got to tip them, but it would have been quicker and cleaner and just nicer. So those are my tips. Maybe, maybe do those things, but all in all, it was a really good thing. It's one of those things where if I went back to Israel, I would be less likely to do it again. I'm really glad I did it the first time. I wouldn't have missed it for the world, but I don't know that I would do it again because it wasn't exactly a pleasant experience. It was more a fascinating and interesting experience. So maybe I would because you don't get to go there too often, but um, beyond two times, I really don't think I'd want to do it anymore. And even that second time, uh, I'm not really sure. So that was the whole day. Um, It was a long one. Even though we only saw three things, and that's kind of the interesting part of Israel is like so much of it depends on where you're going, how many other tour groups are there, how far do you have to drive. Um, Once you're at the site, how much is there to see or what questions are there going to be? And that kind of depends like how long things take. So even though this day we only saw three things, um, each one, and, and honestly, these three things were pretty close to each other, but each one took a decent amount of like touring once we were there um especially masada so it really felt like a very full day um in between you know traveling to and from all the places and um yeah so some days you'll see 55 things and they're right next to each other and some days you'll see three but it never felt like we didn't have a full day so that was good Uh, next time we will let's see what we have the day after this was when we went to the temple mount for the first time and that was incredible that was probably one of my all-time favorite things we did in all of israel so we'll go through that and we might actually consolidate a little bit of information because that day we didn't have so much to do uh maybe that maybe not that day might be a full episode the day after that was the seventh day of the feast of tabernacles and day 13 and 14 were a little bit um there was just less to do and less to see, so we might have that be one full episode. But Day 12 should be its own episode, so I hope you're looking forward to that. we got got Pool of Bethesda, uh, a Shiloh, or Shiloh, and then we went to the Tower of David to see a light show. So we'll talk about all that next time. Thank you guys very much for listening.